Writing the Rapids, the writing podcast. This week, I had the co-editors of Pseudopod and an assistant editor of Pseudopod on for a different kind of episode. I had a great time talking with these three people, and in a moment, you will hear them introduce themselves and the wonderful conversation that followed. As always, if you like this show, you can give me a, a tithe, a little pittance over at patreon.com slash WTR. I recently had a piece called The Broken Teeth Diaries published over at X-Ray Magazine, so go check that out. There will be a link in the show notes. And I don't want to put any more time between you and hearing the interview, so here it is. All right. Uh, Well, this is Sean Garrett. I'm the co-editor of Pseudopod. Uh, That means that on the production end of things we make the sausage we pick the stories we buy them we assign the readers uh i'm alex hoflick i'm the other half of that uh co-editor team and i've been involved with pseudopod on and off for approaching a decade at this point but uh i got Bumped up to the uh, ed- editorial team, I don't know, a handful of years ago, and it's it's been it's been fantastic back on the uh, backside, and I enjoy making sausage. <laughs> Hi, I'm Karen Bovenmeyer. I'm the shiny brand new assistant editor of Pseudopod. I previously had uh, been guest editor for Artemis Rising last year, and before that, I was a contributor to Pseudopod, and before that, I was an avid listener. So this has been a really fun journey to go from being thrilled by Al's voice to actually getting to have a recorded conversation with Al (laughs) Um, and the pseudopod music thrumming in the background, which I I actually had to like get up and scream and run around (laughs) around my house a little bit. It was so exciting. Yeah, that is, that is one of the things about staff meeting is occasionally we have to uh, remind ourselves, Oh, we're not just listening to Al. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, I guess one one of the things that I, I posted on Twitter a while ago was that uh, writers of, of fiction and poets are, I think, the only artists in the world left who are willing to work for free. Um, <laughs> and the fact that you guys pay and have always paid, um, so long as I've listened, I started listening a long time ago, back when I was in middle school, I think. So... Was that always part of the plan? And how does that, how did that work back then? Now it makes kind of sense with uh, Patreon and whatnot. Well, um, it's always been donor based. And uh, Pseudopod started in 2006. It was the first spinoff from Escape Pod, which started in 2005. Um, when Escape Pod started, it was starting out as, as token payments. Um, largely out of uh, the editor's pocket. And then as donations started rolling in, started using that and uh, went to $100 flat for every full-length story. Um, Once our donations grew enough, 
Um, we went to, uh, it's probably been three or four years now, we raised our rates to uh, the CIFWA Science Fiction Writers Association professional rate level of six cents a word for original stories. And we still pay a hundred bucks flat for, um, for full length stories. Okay. So I would read means of both full length Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I was, there was a video, maybe a TEDx talk or something with Mallory Ortberg who started the toast and she was talking about how, uh, they wanted to pay authors. So they just built that into the funding when they built the site. And I guess the thing I find interesting with regard to payment for fiction or poetry is how many people are starting magazines without that in the plan. Um, but I would be remiss to discourage people from starting literary magazines, uh, just kind of like in general, because it seems like the more is out there, the better. Where are you guys with that idea? Uh, well, I mean, it would be nice if, if everybody could get paid for their work, but of course the reality is that was, wasn't even true when you weren't talking about the internet, when you were talking about, you know, uh, small, press publications and things like that you got paid in copies and um so i mean i i I guess if 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 i I don't really know what i'd call the 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 standards by which it should be measured but at a certain point if if a publication lasts then at a certain point they should start paying a, a standard rate and then at a certain point they should start paying professional rates um but I know what you mean in terms of just wanting there to be more product out there. I mean, the thing is, part of it is is that uh, podcasting, you cut out the overhead. You're, you're not printing physical copies of a thing. Mm-hmm. You're not having to stick to a schedule, a bi-monthly or monthly, God help them, schedule. Um, as, you know, in general, the population's interest in short fiction, which has been on the wane since 1950-whatever, uh, you know, Uh, continues to drop and yet you have this new uh you know way of getting into people uh getting into an audience which is through audio um so you know in a sense you can argue that uh you've taken away a lot of the overhead cost uh presuming that we're talking about some kind of internet publishing and and you know no uh physical offshoot um which then hopefully you can fund, you know, you can at least take uh, half of what you've saved there and funnel it back towards the authors. Uh, and then, of course, the other half would go towards being able to keep doing it. You know? <laughs> Speaking as a publishing author um, and as a teacher of new authors, uh, I, I like to say what Mer Lafferty always told me, uh, which is writers die of exposure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought was a, a good thing. And early in my career, I did submit things for no pay to uh, places that were important to me, like cancer benefit or domestic abuse benefit. And in fact, I still do that sometimes. Um, and then close personal friends who are doing special anthologies. Uh, sometimes I will write for free for them. Uh, more often, it's more like a reprint. Um, but I, I encourage my students to hang on to their work because their work has value and to wait until they get between nine to 12 rejections for a story 
before they consider, okay, maybe maybe this one needs to go instead to a lower paying market or a free market, or to really listen to their hearts. If this is a, a friend that they really care about or, you know, something, some cause that's really important to them, or, you know, they just love the people to go ahead and, and submit it with not for pay. Okay. That I've got, um, yeah. One, I, I've got a challenge to, to the market out there that, that says it can't be done. Um, Nightlight, uh, the Black Horror Fiction Podcast, they just started this year. They started from day one as a, as a one-man band and started paying 30 bucks flat rate for, for all the stories. So it can be done. You know, at, at minimum, everybody should at least be paying something. Yeah, that 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 is a viable model, no matter no matter what. I like that sentiment. Um, I, I've found that my in my own writing, and maybe it's detrimental to my craft or something, but I find that that doing flash fiction because I can write it so quickly and. Um, because there's so many places out there that that publish flash fiction i almost think of it as like an unpaid internship where i'm building my resume with all these flash pieces so that when i want a longer work published i can present my resume of previously published work in all of these other places um which isn't always the best because there are some places that don't want to know where you've been published before they just want to see the work based on the merit of its self uh, what's the what's the pseudopod model for knowing about an author before they read their piece? I think uh, Alex and I approach this slightly differently. I generally just tend to read the story. I don't read cover letters. Often I don't look at uh, author name. Uh, I just read the piece and decide if I liked it or not, uh, you know, and then move for on from there. It's not like I don't ever look at these things, but I just I don't look at them initially. Um, but on the other hand, there are some authors who we have published before and who we like and who, you know, uh, consistently give us good material. And so Alex is good about making sure those get kind of bumped, uh, you know, in front of me. Uh, instead of uh, having to, you know, kind of uh, wade through the uh, the slush readers, um, but in general, I'm more on the end of I read I read the story and decide if it's good because there are any number of great writers that I love that turned out lousy stories in their time. I mean, you know, you don't you, you, all you need to do is uh, read the third volume of the collected Richard Matheson short fiction. Uh, which ends with all these stories that are basically uh, late sales. And what that means is he wrote them back in the day, but he couldn't sell them because they weren't very good. And then after he got his name made, he sold them, you know, off to mm. various collections and things. They were drawer stories. And, uh, you know, so, you know, it's it's kind of a crap. I mean, you'd like to – I can understand the desire to, to – who want to be able to look at a list of places and go like, oh, wow, well, that person has at least knows what they're doing, you know, in terms of having been published in a, in a bunch of different places. Um, but that can be a double-edged sword, too. So, um, Alex, did, did you want to chime in? 
No, I was just going to say even even the rock stars have to uh, get hit a payday once in a while. And that those uh, drawer stories um, do a good job of of serving that that need. But um, yeah, for for newer folks, um, you know, it's it's heartening to see uh, a a good resume, but it doesn't really factor into my decision process. Okay. Yeah, I agree. I also did editing for Mothership Zeta magazine when we, that was the fun and uplifting that we had through uh, Escape Artists. And then I did four years of slushing for Nightmare and then also uh, Year's Best. And for me, it's true as well. Like the story has to be really strong and really good all on its own. And then other considerations can come into uh, come into our understanding. So if you've got, like, from speaking from my experience as an editor, if I have like five slots, and I've got thirty stories that I think are pretty good, and say two of the stories, I would go and have a fist fight with somebody over <laughs> getting the, getting it into one of those five slots because I'm like I am in love with the story. I don't care. Um, the other three slots, you know, say maybe out of those 30 pretty good stories, there's 10 or so they are all sort of vying for that last three. And, you know, it's like this one has a really good thing here happening with it. And this one will be great if they just revise the ending a tiny bit. You know, and this one, well, it's not really my taste, but another editor likes it. And when I'm looking through those kinds of considerations, then I look at somebody and I'm like, you know what? this person I have published a story from like three times <laughs> and you know, maybe it's, maybe it's time that this other person who's a new voice that hasn't had a chance, but this story is of equal awesomeness, you know, maybe that's a choice that I make instead. Um, or I look at it and I'm like, you know, I've done, I've published a number of stories about this particular topic lately, but this other thing is a totally new topic that I haven't, you know, considered before or hasn't been in our lineup before and then that might edge a story a little bit closer to getting one of those last three spots but uh i don't know what do you sean alex what do you guys think about that well i mean it, it that sounds exactly right i mean to me the other kind of elephant in the room then is that past those considerations of is it a good story or not then comes the qualifier of would it make for a good reading, uh, which is its own thing and spe specific to what we do. Um, as I've, I've the Karen and Alex have both heard me say this many times, so I apologize for repeating myself. But like you know, I still don't know even if we were able to get the rights to say a Robert Aikman piece, whether or not I feel like I'd be able to it would be worth trying to pull off a Robert Aikman piece on Pseudopod because he's a very dense writer. You really have to kind of follow on the page. Uh, and people process stories differently when they're read to them rather than reading them off the page. I'd say the same thing about um, Henry James as the other example I always bring up. Uh, would love to do the Jolly Corner, you know, but... Uh, I don't know, you know, I don't know whether they, they there are aspects of, of the writing that worry me as to whether it would come across in audio. And so that has to be 
consideration after the fact that, and occasionally that works the other way around, which is that you read a story and maybe it's a, uh, it's not a hit it out of the park story, but on the other hand, it's perfect for audio, you know, and then you kind of, and so that tends to give it a little bit of a bump up too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys have a whole extra cog in the machine. Um, the other thing that I'm interested to hear your thoughts on is horror as genre fiction, because I read a lot of dark quote unquote literary fiction that I would consider horror. Um, and it seems to me as though horror doesn't have the strict guidelines that maybe science fiction or fantasy does. Uh, and I, uh, that's, I guess, the end of, of the thought slash question. <laughs> well, horror doesn't require that, doesn't require the speculative element, but it can include it. Um, and some of the some of the best stories out there are ones where you can argue whether or not there's a speculative element in in the story at all. Like uh, to go back to a classic example would be the yellow wallpaper or for something more modern, um, like uh, Paul Tremblay's Head Full of Ghosts. Both of those are, you can argue whether or not there's a speculative element in either of those. Um, but you can also argue that there absolutely is. Hmm. Yeah, this is something I could probably fill up like the next hour on because it's been a lifelong um back and forth conversation with myself uh, because I too read a lot of uh, lit and read a lot of dark lit and in fact I think we've got um, if everything works out we've got uh, for Christmas and this is what I warned you about earlier when we were off mic that my ability to <laughs> pull things up at, at, at memory are, are always going to be a little tough once they start going but I'm scrolling down the list now uh, we've hopefully got for Christmas a Thomas Hardy story hmm. uh, in terms of so you know I know what you mean by dark lit that kind of seems to overslop into the horror area um, I go back and forth on how I define genre um, I'm not I'm not as hard line about it as some are but I'm not as like you know open borders as others are i think it i always think of genres as having permeable barriers and those per permeable areas are sometimes where the more interesting stuff happens and you know uh, uh it begins to expand itself but um uh like i said i could talk about this a lot and i think i've kind of uh, lost uh, track of what the initial uh thing of this was was it uh, <laughs> uh I I guess it's just sort of like an idea that I, I have trouble with uh, because I have pieces that I could call horror but didn't necessarily write with with the idea that, oh, I'm going to send these to horror magazines. It also seems like maybe the communities around dark lit or horror is different. Um, and the the sort of subgenre-ing of different types of darker fiction cause the waters to get muddy, such as Bizarro. I just got yeah. like the Bizarro starter pack and I read it and it reminds me of horror, but it reminds me of alt lit and it reminds me of 
you know, people trying to revive Kafka and so on and so forth. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess to approach this in another way, in a kind of a mechanical way, one of the ways I always think of it is that, and I use this definition a lot to make the distinction between horror and dark fantasy, because I think we see a lot of dark fantasy submissions and a lot of dark fantasy gets presented in the horror forum. Um, and it's not as if they're cut and dry different, but, um, but I do think that like, you know, uh, you can dilute, uh, the impact of a, say a horror publication or, uh, um, you know, presentation by having a little too much dark fantasy, because in the end, you have to remember that people are coming, hopefully, with some flexibility, but hopefully they're coming to hear something scary. So I tend to think of horror as stories that are trying to scare, upset, or disturb you. Mm. And I deliberately leave it that vague to cover the fact that you know um, uh, in the penal colony by kafka is a very disturbing story and you know um any number of um, dark lit authors are are disturbing and so you know you could kind of see them as horror or related uh occasionally we'll do showcases uh on the podcast which is a month of something on a theme mm -hmm. so far certainly done two of the science fiction ones uh, but I have long-term plans for a noir one. I'd like to do one on uh, black comedy, um, and another on decadent writing, uh, you know, just to kind of point out that there are points at which all of these genres overlap with horror. Uh, you know, they have many of the same elements, and uh, depending on which story you're talking about, they are trying to, the main thrust of it is trying to unnerve you or disturb you or bother you in some way <laughs> okay i i like oh. i like artist intent as as being one of the signifiers of the genre well and that's a sticky that's a sticky uh situation there with artists intent because mm -hmm. as a as an english uh master's student we would always have these big fights over you know, reader response theory. What is important? Is it the reaction that the text is generating in the reader or is it the, the author's intent? And I think that the truth of it lies somewhere in between those things. Um, as an author, like I would encourage somebody who has always loved genre and read genre and just really enjoys genre, but they have stuff and people are telling you, oh, this is literary. You know, and you're like, okay, my choice is I can submit it to a literary magazine and start making connections there and start meeting people in that area because that's a place I want to grow. Or I can submit it to a place, even if it, you know, a place that maybe even if it doesn't pay, not that literary pays because usually that doesn't. No. <laughs> but a place that would make my palms sweat. And so I think, you know, what excites you as an author of where you really want to work towards becoming published? Like, I think that's an important consideration. And furthermore, what determines horror and what doesn't? Like early on, a lot of the stuff that I wrote, especially in school and afterward was pretty dark. And um, I didn't really understand that what I was writing was horror. People just kept telling me, you know, this is dark. And then somebody, an editor at a conference, and this is my very first publication story, said, hey, I'm doing a horror anthology. Do you write horror? And I'm thinking to myself, oh, I, I, don't, 
I don't think so. But, you know, when you're a brand new author and an editor says, hey, do you write horror? I want you to submit to an anthology. What comes out of your mouth actually is, yes, I do. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then you run off and listen to 10 years worth of Pseudopod nonstop (laughs) and learn exactly what horror is. So, like, Pseudopod taught me what horror is. And Ellen Datlow taught me what horror is. And I have attended her sessions at conferences again and again. And what I love that she says is... Horror is a mood. It's a mood that strikes you, you know, while you're reading the book. And I would assume while you're writing the story or the book, you just, you're in this certain place and that that mood is being generated. And that is what we call horror. But I would add personally another distinction. And that is what I was talking about on our Mafongo Nose story that we recently published. Mm-hmm. Um, Horror is also about the choices that the characters make or don't make to to change or not change their situation. You know, what is the choice they make? Is it the dark choice? You know, is Mm -hmm. there an action that causes something bad to happen? Or, you know, what is the choice or, or lack of making a choice that the character makes? And I think that is what helps define, okay, yeah, this is a horror story, personally. Yeah, because, you know, uh, just to say it, another thing I often say is, uh, you know, the um, there's also just that kind of um, this idea that by default, if a story has certain elements, it's a horror story. So if there's a vampire in it or it has a ghost in it, then it's a horror story. But, you know, there's an entire history of ghost stories that aren't horror stories. And, you know, if your story is about a vampire bemoaning the fact that, oh, how awful it is to be alive for centuries and woe is me and, you know, crying into his Elizabethan sleeves and all that. um, (laughs) And, you know, the okay, yeah, technically he's a walking dead man, but that's never engaged with in the the story at all. Yeah, then it's not a horror story, you know. (laughs) <laughs> it's just, it's that simple, you know, or at least to me it is, it, you know, and for other people, maybe it isn't anyway, because they project, you know, past what the story gives them. Sure. Uh, so where is horror right now as a genre? What do you guys see as, do you, do you see any currents or, or waves or directions that the genre is going Alex and Karen might be better at this than me. I tend to be a uh, looking backwards type of reader, uh, which doesn't mean I don't read modern things, but I don't read much of it. Uh, we publish a lot of currently writing writers who uh, seem to me to be doing good work. I don't know if uh, I'd, I'd point them as kind of, uh, you know, pioneers of a new style. Uh, I am happy that it seems that the Thomas Ligotti uh, kind of current has has taken hold now, and you're beginning to see more of that. Yeah, uh, you know, in uh-huh. thing. although that also kind of leads into this weird area where you know, um, you know, if it's just you know existential uh, dismay at how awful things are, is that horror? And it's like, well, again, it comes down to what the author's choosing to focus on and how they're choosing to, to you know, portray it. So, um, I'm going to sneeze. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but I mean, there are a lot of things happening. Bizarro 
certainly seems to be happening, uh, but it seems to also occupy a strange area that at least to me doesn't line up with a lot of what I think of as horror. Um, my favorite kind of horror tends to be uh, material in which you pre you are starting with the, the starting point is the average world and you then distort that in some way or add something to it that uh, but when you're starting with this kind of, you know, anything goes, you know, this is a story told from the point of view of a character in a video game that hasn't been played and is sitting on the shelf. Or it's like, that's fine, because I like a lot of surrealists and stuff like that. But I, uh, um, that's, there's, you know, to me, that's missing the identifier of, of horror, the, the kind of personal connection identifier that horror needs to pull off being horrifying hmm that's interesting so. go as ahead as a professor i'm gonna always have something to say of course because that's how we're programmed um but alex did you want to jump in well uh horror is in a really good space right now from a market standpoint there's there has been a lot more quiet horror that has gotten a lot more attention with things like the witch and get out and mm. i am really excited to see the number of people who pick up shirley jackson after uh the this latest incarnation of the haunting a hill house uh, i i really excited to uh see some of the things that that come out of you know that movement but in the you know writing end of things there's there's a lot of interest in repeating some of that same sort of emotion, you know, coming from liter you know, literary fiction and also from the weird. For my part, um, the 300 stories that, that were submitted in September that I've been like working my way through, um, I'd say there's a tendency in, and it's maybe because of the current political climate, but there's a tendency to slip in a, a little happy note at the end. <laughs> oh, really? Like the story will be dark, 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 dark. And I'm like, ooh. And then I get to the end and there's a little bit like, but it might have been okay because of this. You know, like there's a, it's almost like current writers right now who are trying to chuck out some horror or like, I, I, I need a little something happy to get me through the day. You know, like yeah. it seems like uh, right now people might be a little bit looking for something happier. And then the second point that I'd like to make about where I feel speculative fiction is going is um, as a professor, I shamelessly use my students to examine questions that I'm interested in. Absolutely. <laughs> I taught a seminar that was what's the future of genre. And so they, the first half of the semester, they read, um, they, I split them into teams that were sorted by the Hogwarts houses. And uh, each team had to read stories. Uh, everybody was reading different stories from a certain decade. And they had to say, what was it that genre fiction cared about in the 1960s? And so each team came up with a list from the stories they'd read about like, oh, well, people were afraid of nuclear fallout or people were afraid of this and so they did this for they talked about what were people afraid of through the award winners for every decade until the present and then their homework for the next whole rest of the semester was to design stories that would quote unquote fit 
the things that we're going to be afraid of in the next 10 years. And these were all, you know, 18 to 22 year olds. Mm. And so I thought what they came up with was super interesting <laughs> and I've seen it reflected because I taught this class a number of years ago and I've seen it reflected in this decade. Um, people are more interested in global stories, um, fears like the ones Paolo Bacigalupi looks at, um, body modification fears, um, genetic fears, starving uh, fears, um, we're always afraid water of water resources. Pardon? Water, uh, water shortages. Yeah, water, and then also uh, hurricanes, and you know, big big movements of things that are gonna you know crush us. But it was interesting to see that they wanted to talk about different settings, like settings around the world. Like one team came up with a novel set in Brazil. You know, like they they wanted to to figure out what else was going on outside of the standard genre always being set in, you know, like fantasy being set in medieval mm -hmm. you know, Europe. So it was interesting. I think that I'm seeing that reflected in some submissions as we're seeing more stories outside of, you know, sort of the lockstep um, tradition. We're seeing stories of horror, horrible monsters from different cultural traditions. Mm -hmm. And then, stories of difference of people who are are different or underrepresented but that's not like the whole point of the story yeah They're just a character going through something that's happening that's horrible but they happen to also belong to an underrepresented group which i think is cool that the story is not just all about that yeah i i like it when that happens too i, I find that it makes the story feel more earnest rather than like oh we have to put in this character so that it the story falls in like the sort of uh ideological checklist of the times yeah i like it it's like people are people hey look here's a people that's mm -hmm. going through hard times <sighs> yeah good i'm sorry um i was just gonna say if uh if there's a uh a thing that we see with some frequency, which I guess would be considered kind of a, a modern trend that I also consider maybe something of a dead end though, is the uh, playing with kind of a metatextual kind of approach, playing with the format of the, of the and, and I don't mean a dead end might be a bit strong. Um, but what I mean is that, like, you know, sitting down, I can think of a story we got. And the story was all about, you know, riffing on um, the cabin in the woods and the fact that they point out in the cabin in the woods that there's always this person that has to be there to warn the people that are coming to the accepted horror scenario beforehand. You know, the old guy that runs the gas station or whatever. But the hmm. entire story was about being that guy and mm. that's not a bad idea but they never turned it into a horror story all it was was is a story about uh you know some aspect of horror stories <laughs> so you know uh in the end we rejected it uh and so you'll see that occasionally and this is also something that just becomes more apparent to us because again we have to present the thing in um uh audio 
so, you know, when you see kind of these rather tricky, you know, um, I haven't read it, but what's the uh, uh, um, house, uh, what's the book, the horror novel, fairly recent, that's all, it goes, it kind of devolves into the footnotes and all Oh, uh, House of Leaves. House of Leaves. Yeah. That sounds like a really cool and excellent read. There's no way we could do that. Oh, absolutely I'm, not. Yeah. And I'm, I'm trusting that it ends up being scary, but I think that's because the author, you know, went, okay, I've got this great, neat idea, and then I got to remember to keep it scary, and instead, you know, other lesser talents come along, and they just, I just got this great, neat idea, you know, and they never... Yeah remember to kind of circle back to the part where now how do you make it scary you know mm-hmm. so. i yeah th- that book i think has been mentioned on damn near every episode of this podcast so far mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and of course you couldn't do that in audio and that's something that's been mentioned too but well you you could do it in audio but it would need to be an adaptation you couldn't do mm-hmm. a straight translation yeah, there, there's there's a bunch of the things with the you know slow corruption of of the document. You would have to do a different version of the corruption of the audio. You, oh, you've got to yeah. you've got to make it match the medium. So there would be you could do it. It would require a whole lot of additional work. Yeah, for yeah, sure. It's funny because this came into my mind again just recently because they had done on BBC Radio. Um, a presentation of Nigel Neal's The Stone Tape, uh, one of my favorite made-for-TV British things from the uh, mid-'70s. And um, I just happened... They did this about a year ago or so. Uh, The original was in the 70s. They did an audio version of it uh, just about a year ago, and I just happened to watch the DVD within this last week. And brought back to mind that when I heard the audio version and again, it, okay, it was a radio, it was an audio play. It wasn't a reading because there was no original source text outside of the screenplay. Uh, but um, essentially anybody listening to it who had never seen the original version uh, would not understand what was happening at the end of that, you know, and they didn't seemingly, they just forgot to figure out a way to make that work so you know there is that problem of audio of you know and you can hear all kinds of uh you know i'd much rather listen to a reading of stephen king's the mist than as neat as it was the binaural uh, radio drama version of it because the the radio drama version of it felt that they had to include all of the descriptions of the creatures and just turn them into dialogue. So it oh. became a, you know, a, oh no, a giant bug is crawling up the wall with horrible pink tentacles. And, you know, and it's just, <laughs> it, none of it flowed like it flowed on the page as a piece of writing. And, you know, it was their job as adapters to figure out how to pull that off. And they just kind of, uh, you know, defaulted to, well, just put it in the character's mouths, you know, and it, it didn't work. So, but yeah, I, I mean, I guess it w- there might be a way to pull off something like House of Leaves in audio. Uh, but again, you know, you'd, you'd have to be somebody who was really good at understanding what the text pulled out, out off, sure. and then somebody who also really understood how audio worked, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and some things just don't work. Some things don't carry over. That's what I was saying earlier about certain authors. Certain authors are difficult to get across. Maybe if you got the perfect reader, 
uh, you know, in an audio form. So, you know, it's I feel like an author can ad address this question for themselves with their own work. If they're saying, oh, I don't know if I should send this to Pseudopod or not. I think it's a good move to uh, send it to your Kindle and have your Kindle read it aloud to you. Mm. Because I've found that like, when I'm in a super crabby mood and I'm reading something that's been submitted and I'm like, I totally didn't even understand what was going on in this beginning part. And I'm like super mad mm -hmm. <laughs> and I reread it and I'm like, Oh no, I kind of see what's going on. And then I'm like, okay, Karen, just, you know, have Siri read it to you. Like I'll have my iPhone speak to me the story or I'll send it to my Kindle and have my Kindle read it aloud to me. And I'll be like, Oh, Oh no, this actually, yes. Okay. Yeah, no, that is, that is actually pretty good. I was just not, my brain was not wanting to do it. Um, so I'd say like, if, if someone is wondering, is my story a good fit for Pseudopod? Have your, you know, little computerized voice read it aloud to you. And if it still, you know, sounds pretty good being read to you by the computer, then, you know, give it a shot. And a um, alternate of that is just read it out loud, you know, <laughs> like, <read laughs> you darn loud. kids. You, you know. darn kids. <laughs> <laughs> So where, where is the, or is there a limit for pseudopod, um, between a reading and a radio play? Because I, there's obviously been episodes where there's been multiple readers. There's one story that you guys did a long time ago that had like creepy eight bit music and I had to turn it off. Like that's the only time a horror story is in in my near adult life has like ever caused me to to really like oh i need to change the set and setting um uh, kill kill screen is such a good story that's the one yeah <laughs> uh, yeah i mean that's it's it's an interesting call because um when we make the decision to do extra bits of production oh this would be great with multiple cast oh this would be great with a sound bed or you know um it tends to be a rare thing because in the end we just want it you know in the end what we want to be what we want to present is readings of good fiction and there is a certain strain of listener and i can totally understand it who would see anything that we do whether it be multiple readers or or a sound bed or whatever else as um uh, trying to over egg the pudding or you know sweeten the pot so to speak um or would find it distracting and so i get that so we tr you know it's only when we're reading it and it really just you know cry seems to cry out like we did what was the uh, story about the woman living in the treetops uh earlier? Oh, yeah evitative evitative that's right um that wouldn't have necessarily been one that seemed uh, to have you know been crying out for an audio bed or you know audio production on it and yet as i read it i just was like you know what's great about this is that its setting is so odd it's such a, a you know this this treetop world that th this character has to inhabit now and yeah, you could have just relied on, you know, the, the, the author's words and they worked obviously because it brought the thought into my mind. Uh, but I just felt like, eh, you know, we should add a little bit of this just in the background, you know, bird sounds and wind and that kind of stuff. Um, so 
I mean, we don't do radio dramas. Yeah, you know, we, you know, you know, we make that point uh, often because you would be surprised how few, you know, how how often people don't read the uh, the the guidelines, uh, and so we'll get you know scripts and stuff like that, um, you know, that are done as if they're radio dramas, and that's not what we do. But um, it's really more or less um, coloring. It's like. If if the 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 audio bits would add some nice, would augment the fiction rather than you know kind of a feeling that it's filling in for something that that the author wasn't able to to, to pull off or something. Well, and and some of the uh, modifications, uh, particularly with large cast, it helps to you know lend that sense of verisimilitude you know some of it is okay these are found documents well yeah if we're talking about in the story here's a found document of a clip of audio we should you know that's a perfect opportunity to help immerse the listener even more like um or if it's something set on you know internet forums uh the story that uh we did last year a howling dog by nick mamitas um that one you've got a number of people responding on something that is very uh closely aligned with next door and you've got neighbors sniping at each other it works a whole lot better than having a number of voices rather than having one narrator try and differentiate between a half dozen voices because one thing we try to do is if you've got more than about five characters it's really hard to differentiate in audio and it's really hard to differentiate in a short form um, and give all those people individual personalities but if you can pull in more voices that's one way that that that's some shorthand that you can use to to try and uh, assist with with something like that or uh the episode 400 the screw fly solution by james tiptree bringing in a number of other voices since part of that is letters and part of that is news reports being able to pull in a number of different voices for those those different parts really really made that extra powerful it's already a phenomenal story and it was only elevated by you know the the readers and some of the extra uh, atmosphere that that lent. And as we finalize our stories for Artemis Rising, this is a conversation that I'm having with uh, Tonya from Nightlight. There is a story that's got several different voices in it. And we're like, Ooh, you know, who, who would read this? Like, could it be adapted to audio? So it's definitely, you know, right, right up there on our minds. Um, and Tonya's like, you know, actually, because of my work with Nightlight, I think I know this person and this person who would do a great job with these parts. And she's like, I just really passionately love this story, which I think underscores a point that I like to tell new writers. You don't necessarily have to convince the entire editorial team that your story is the best thing on earth. If you get one of us passionately loving your story, you know, like we will go to the mat <laughs> and fight mm-hmm. for it to get one of those slots. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, we there probably each of us could can pull examples, uh, you know, over time of things, and it wasn't 
that the other editors hated the story because if they hated it, then it probably wouldn't have run. But they just it didn't hit their buttons, but it hit, you know, each of our particular buttons. And so, um, you know, we had just done the um, uh, a tour of the catacombs of Via uh, Montavecchi or something like that. And I as I was reading that, I was just like, oh, this would sound so good in audio. I could just I you know, I was already itching, uh, you know, to to want to pull it off. Uh, to, you know, want to convince everybody else because and it's a story in which very little happens. So, you know, it's it's going to be a tough sell, but there were so many little things about it that I knew we could take advantage of the of the format that we have. So, <laughs> um, and before we uh, hit our hit our hour mark, uh, do you guys want to talk about Artemis Rising? I really like that. I find that it has a lot of great stories. Um, do you want to? How did you come to having that idea? Because I don't remember it being always the case, and uh, and uh, yeah, you want to talk about I, that a little bit? I can talk a little bit about the history and then turn it over to Karen. Mm -hmm. um, the we're looking at submissions right now for our fifth year of Artemis Rising, and a lot of that was was started by trying to help provide a hand up to voices that have been traditionally marginalized in the publishing industry. And also trying to reach out and get, um, you know, additional, getting, getting some new voices into the market. And a lot of this was inspired by um, uh, John Joseph Adams' Women Destroy Project. Uh, and you know, we were doing our part as a community member to take take the that mission and amplify it and and grow that. Um, and then I guess I'll uh, and you know having some champions on on the inside of the team. You know, there there's a number of folks who uh, were really passionate about it and put in a whole bunch of the additional setup work to to make to make the, the the whole thing come off because trying to get multiple editorial teams um all pointed in the same direction at the same time is is not a it's not a simple task because you know all of the different podcasts have entirely separate editorial teams and we don't you know We've got uh, no input on what Escape Pod does, and often only a, a, a vague idea of what they're doing at any given point in time. Hmm. So it, it's a we we work with each other, but I couldn't tell you uh, with without uh, going to like a contract spreadsheet to <laughs> tell you what's coming up later this year on Escape Pod. Um, of course, except for. They're, they are doing uh, Sarah Pinsker's, and then there was N minus one, the uh, Hugo shortlist, and then Yuji shortlist uh, novella. That hmm. was fantastic. So I know that's coming up, but other than that, I I don't know what else they they've got planned for the rest of this year. Karen, 
No, oh, unless she's gone. Oh. Mm -hmm. No, she's she's muted. She may be talking, but oh. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> there she is. Um, so speaking as a uh, first of all, a submitter to Artemis Rising back in the day, and like wanting to really badly wanting to be published by Sudafod, and then later being invited to submit um, to help fill a, a slot and uh being invited as a guest editor like and now being assistant editor where i'm mentoring and helping the guest editors now and i'm also sort of coordinating a support group for the guest editors because of uh, what my experience as a guest editor was like so like i'm kind of super de duper involved between all the <laughs> different podcasts in this but i want to speak for a second about why it was important to me um, that this exists. So because, <laughs> because part of my job, I take it onto myself as this being part of my job is to, uh, promote, Hey, uh, ladies, go ahead and submit to Artemis Rising. And this year was particularly difficult. Every year I get angry male friends, um, mm -hmm. and not, and not even people I know, um, really attacking me hardcore uh, <laughs> and I don't you know you don't know me yet Joe but mm -hmm. I'm a very cuddly and nice um, midwestern woman I'm from Iowa I grew up on a Christmas tree farm I write <laughs> creepy scary horror where usually someone gets eaten okay but that is not a thing no one in my family will read that N most of my friends that are, you know, local friends will not read that. My coworkers will not read my stories, mm. right? These are too scary. <laughs> nice farm women, Midwestern girls like me are not <laughs> encouraged to write or read this stuff. You know, so I would be in a corner like happily reading my Edgar Allan Poe because sad was my happy you know, and pouring over my George Carroll Oates <laughs> back in a corner in grad school. Like, see, but then people will come up to me and say, oh, but you guys have Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley and, you know, and you've got Shirley Jackson and like women have always been in horror. Women have been in the foundations of horror. Like what, why do you, uh, this is my lived experience. Like I was never encouraged. And because I'm a, a humongous nerd and all of my stuff is either science fiction, fantasy, or horror, mm -hmm. like the other people in my traditional master's degree program that I did back in 2000 would just sort of do a golf clap. Like, oh, I, I don't get this. Right? And mm -hmm. then when I went and got my speculative fiction, my genre fiction degree from Stone Coast, everybody in there like knew exactly what I was trying to write and what I was doing. But still... When that editor came up to me at a conference and said, I'm doing an anthology, and this was not for professional pay, and this was some guy who's a cardiac nurse and happens to be a delightful human being, and he was just like, you know what, I need to get more women's voices into my anthology. I'm going to walk up to this woman at this conference who asked an interesting question and, and say, hey, do you want to submit? It changed my life that he came up to me and said that to me. Uh, because then I looked at my work and I'm like, no, I, you write horror, girl. Hello. This is what, <laughs> this is why no one that you know wants to read your stories. You know, this is why you feel so alone all the time. This is you, these are your people and this is what you write. 
And having something like Artemis Rising, and especially a voice like me out there to other female writers and being like, hey, hey, we are here. You have permission. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have permission to identify yourself as a horror writer. And you know what? I'll read your story. You just send your story to me, my friend. You are finding your people. Um, and just like to try and explain that to a friend who is uh, very angry, you know, that uh, he's being locked out of one month mm-hmm. <laughs> of submitting. It's so intensely painful. <laughs> I'm like, don't yell at me on Facebook because other women I'm trying to encourage and excite see your angry yelling and they go, I don't want to be part of this community. I don't want that guy to yell at me. I don't want to be in a situation where I'm going to be yelled at. Cause I'm like, girl, I'm there. I know what you, I'm not a, I'm not a fighter. You guys like I am a snuggly, you know, <laughs> there's a reason why my Patronus is a quokka, <laughs> you know, I don't. And so I just in trying to explain to him, like, listen, if you want to yell at me, you got to do it in private message because this is damaging to what I'm trying to do. So I don't know. It's, it's really hard, but it's really worth it. So I want to keep doing it. Well, and I want to build on what Karen was saying there. Another key component of the Artemis Rising project is to help make sure that the, you know, the women on our team are, are get the opportunity to learn the ins and outs and see if, you know, this, the, the editorial end of things is something that they're interested in. Um, Like a, couple years back we had uh we had uh chelsea davis one of our audio producers approach us said hey i want to do um yeah i'd like to try out some some audio production artemis rising was the perfect opportunity to have her you know she's a one of our was one of our associate editors was reading stories for us but artemis rising was the perfect opportunity to have her train underneath our uh, audio producer Graham Dunlop and learn how all the ins and outs uh, and fiddly parts of, of putting an episode together. And you know, from that, she's one of our regular audio producers. We've got two that we, we trade off months. And um, you know, Karen was our guest editor uh, for Artemis Rising last year, and now she's our assistant editor. Uh, Dagny Paul, who is our Artemis Rising editor two years ago, is now assisting with Vastarian and helping edit that that magazine. There's this is there's an opportunity to teach and learn and and help pull them into the community because um, mostly. Sean and I are, are our participation on Artemis Rising is to help catch and make everything look seamless and do all the parts that they're not interested in learning. Like, you know, Karen wasn't interested in doing the contracting last year because she'd already done that. She knew all the ins and outs of that at, from having done um, Mothership Zeta. So Sean and I stepped in and we took care of that piece because, you know, that, that was absolutely something that we we're we already do for for all the episodes so let's say alex stepped in and did that i'm terrible (laughs) 
I don't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, it, but it, it's it's still an it's an opportunity to to you know bring more people in and really helps to integrate them into into the community. I can speak from personal experience that I would not have had the gumption to come up to some editors that I knew and been like, hey, can I, you know, be an editor for you for a while? You know, like that. I would never do that. That's so scary. Yeah. But like, here I am hanging out at my first Stoker Con and Alex comes up to me. He's like, hey, Karen, do you want to edit for, you know, guest edit for Artemis Rising? And I'm like, oh, my God. Yes. But <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> like I wouldn't, without having that invitation, you know, and this speaks to me, like there are other women who are total warriors and I love you and look up to you. I am not that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just so this, I've learned so much and I've become so much and I've done so much and I just like, this is so good. And thank you. Well, that's an interesting thing. I guess I hadn't even thought about it. Uh, that deeply that the the sort of back end having having guest editors and editors and using that as an opportunity for education and exposure beyond just publishing uh, you know stories by women and non-binary people that's that's really cool too because that that expands the the web of potential publications to exist that can have all these other different stories well in general even that's uh outside of artemis rising that's what we hope um slushing for pseudopod um can help with you know the you know slushing is a non-fun task but on the other hand it's we try to at least you know make it begin to be the the structuring of an editor editorial mind you know, because you have to start making decisions. You have to start saying, you know, this works, this doesn't. Why doesn't this work? Why doesn't this, you know, why does this work? And how do I argue that to somebody else and that kind of thing? So in general, you know, we're always trying to, um, you know, the people that are brought in and at a slushing level, they're not paid. And it's a hell of a job to die. I know I did it myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> by myself uh, way back um, you know uh, it's a hell of a job to do and not get paid for but you know the the bonus you get out of it is you get real nitty-gritty experience of the actuality of what editing something like this is which you know anybody can call themselves an editor if they've got the money to publish a book and I think you know we've seen the outcomes of that uh, in various cases um, but it, it is it it is its own skill it is an invisible art sadly you know it's something that uh if you do your job well nobody knows you did it uh but hopefully at some point somebody says hey you know this place is con- consistently good for stories you know mm-hmm. like people co- you know people keep coming back here and uh, you know uh in relation to that as i've often said i would really be surprised if there was anyone that liked every single story we ran because we between alex and i um and and me you know one of the, the dreams i had in particular when i first started was that i was going to try to make this thing as wide-ranging as possible without falling into the traps of that and uh and hopefully we've done that. And but what that means is there's a certain you know chance that there'll be a certain part of the audience 
that goes, ah, geez, I didn't like that story. I'm never going to listen again. God knows why they would do that. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I did. So I often tell people, you know, give us a month, give us four stories, you know, and within those four stories, unless it happens to be a showcase month, you know, uh, you're going to uh, you're going to get the full range of everything. So, you know, it, and hopefully we're passing that on to, uh, you know, all the people that we bring in uh, so they can go off and, you know, spread the the editing illness as it is. <laughs> <laughs> when I recommend to my students that they do uh, six months to a year of slush reading because you do learn a lot. You learn a lot about what's going on in the market right then. Um you get to read stories that are by famous people that haven't been edited yet. And that's very educational and instructional to see like what a polished, you know, professional person submits it. And, but yet is still not accepted. You also are seeing like just the total, uh, I didn't even really care or edit the story very much before okay. I sent it to you percentages. And, and, you know, you, you just, you learn a lot and it makes you braver about, well, it made me braver to submit my own stuff. On a, on a granular level, I can tell you that the one thing that I don't think anyone gets out gets out of slushing without learning is how to pace a story, because you will, you know, have read so many stories where you're like, "Well, this is a really great setup. Well, this is a really great idea. Oh my God, this thing is just paced terribly. Like, there's so much fat, or there's, you know." And supposedly, I think I think that that's what Flash and Drabbles and things like that were invented to do. You know, invented to kind of, you know, be this way of people learning to cut the the fat from their stories. But honestly, read a whole bunch of flabby stories and you'll learn it. You know, yeah. or or uh, you know, read a whole bunch of short fiction from the '50s when all the pulp writers had to you know, really cut cut back on their verbiage because the magazines were thinner, you know, read your Richard Matheson, re- read your Raymond Carver, you know, it's like, that's they don't, these are the guys that'll tell you how to really pace and, 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 you know, have content in the story that just gets it up and running and gets it where it needs to go without endless, you know, dithering about what color the bookcase is or, you know, what the sky looked like that day, you know, so. Well, I think I think that brings us to just about the end. Uh, thank you guys so much. Instead of me um, trying desperately to to plug three people, how about you guys all go around and and do your your plugs, and then we'll we'll finish this out. Aaron, you want to go first? Oh, um, <laughs> okay. Uh, so thank you everyone for listening to us uh, talk about these issues. I can be found at karenbovenmeyer.com, uh, which is just a gateway really to my social media presence. And I love to continue to have conversations like this on my Facebook page or via Twitter. You can also come visit us at the um, Escape Artist Forum and talk about stories with escape with uh, different escape artists, podcast people, which include uh, uh, pseudopodians or pseudopodians. I'm not sure which one we go by. Um, Tentacles. But, uh, my, my creative work can also be found through um, LinkedIn. Hmm. Who's next? Alex, you go. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm just going to, uh, I'm, I'm just an editor. So I'm going to plug. Thank, thanks for, for listening to this. 
uh, go check out a number of stories from Pseudopod. There is a convenient new to Pseudopod uh, list of recommend 13 recommended stories that show kind of the whole range of what we do. Um, and I uh, also encourage everybody to go over and subscribe to Nightlight, the Black Horror Fiction podcast. Uh, they just ran a Cherie Renee Thomas story that's fantastic. And uh, the Linda Addison one uh, warms my heart. So I'd totally, totally worth checking them out. All right. And uh, I'm Sean Garrett. Uh, I was the editor uh, that took over after Ben. And um, I don't have a big web presence, although I am on the forums and check those out occasionally. And also the Facebook Pseudopod Listeners Group, if you uh, feel so inclined, where I post a lot of my, my book reviews and movie reviews. I uh, spend an inordinate amount of time reading uh, short fiction, especially of all types, but obviously horror and supernatural. And uh, I guess as always, I just want to dedicate everything I do on the show to my sister Susan, uh, who passed away in 2010. And uh, uh, almost immediately after that was when Ben asked me if I wanted to take over editing, so I did. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed being a part of it. If you want to learn more about Pseudopod, the website is P-S-E-U-D-O-P-O-D.org. There's a link in the show notes. Please go on and click on it, subscribe, and enjoy all of the wonderful horror stories there. In. If you want to email the show, you can do so at noisemakerjoe at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at noisemakerjoe. Until next time, write more and write better. 